Now you should listen to this because this concerns you. This is about a uh, evil genius in love. Evil genius mind. It woke me up from my sleep and I don't like it. No, you're an evil genius is what you are. If this works, you're, you're some kind of a, a evil genius. Honest to God. Hello and welcome to the Evil Genius Chronicles. I am your little podcast buddy, Dave Slusher. Welcome to the show. The show is being recorded for August 17th, 2023. Oh, the good times. But first, the business. The show is not work safe, not kid safe, not safe in any context. Please uh, duck and cover. Uh, The show is Creative Commons licensed, non-commercial attribution, 4.0 unported. The theme music is by the late great band, The Gentle Readers. They're at gentlereaders.com. Bandwidth is via Cashfly under the kind umbrella of Backbeat Media. I do not speak for my day job. I don't even mention who this day job is. It's Googleable. It's findable. But I am not on brand. I'm on my own time doing my own thing. So uh, do not hold anything I say here uh, against their fine uh, upstanding brand because I am not on brand. All right, let us get directly to a song. Um, Yet another Irish and Celtic music uh, podcast song. This is from a band um, I am unfamiliar with, but I like this song, and I like it specifically because it's kind of funky. Um, There's something I've, I've been smitten with the kind of like the hard rock songs that have real heavy bagpipes in them. This one is like... A, a kind of a you know Irishy folk song, but it's like funky. It's got like a funky bass under it. So I kind of like that. This is the song "Fire in the Kitchen" from the album "Sequences Silence" by the band Occam's Razor.
on the edge on the far side of hell and banging on the walls of my prison cell and so we with master go tear down the walls of jericho i'm calling and round we go seven times around old jericho dividing canaan as we go border on the banks where the jordan flows by the pricking of my thong something wicked this way comes my sweet chariot swings so low breaking in the people long ago Don't know what to do There's a hole in the sky You can see straight through The hanging gardens of Babylon Who never say where I come from Watch the monster rise from the sea With a whole human host to follow me Hand me my scepter, hand me my crown I'm here to watch the walls come tumbling down abrupt there but that was the band Occam's Razor from the album Secrets and Silence with uh, Fire in the Kitchen I believe we were probably <laughs> rolling into the next song but they were rolling into the next song we are not alright now I'm going to tell you as I'm recording this episode I am just bound and determined please for God's sake I hope all the pipe wire issues are done and I took time <laughs> setting this up I've got the same mic stands I bought for when I was doing the reality break show in the 90s. And, you know, they're just standard mic stands. And the way I had them set up for the longest time, the one that I use here at the desk, I use it for, you know, work. I use it for, I just plug it into whatever computer I'm using. And the way I've had it for the longest time is just the laziest possible way, which is it has this arm, but it's just going straight up and down. What this meant is that I was standing right next to the thing. And I've been doing this thing where I either uh, gesticulate and then, slap my arm into the <laughs> mic stand or I step on the bass. Either way, it's auto no matter what you do, if you touch the mic stand, it's audible. <laughs> and oh my God, the effort of trying to remove that from the show has just been killing me. So hopefully there's no weird pipe wire flanging. There's no weird uh periodic uh, and there's no there's no anything. Hopefully I'm not physically going pump thump every so often. Uh it just <laughs> hurts my soul when I'm going along and I'm listening and I hear clunk, 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 clunk. It's like, dude, what are you doing? It's not like you have been in radio for the last 30 years and podcasting for 19. You don't know to not flap your arm into the freaking mic stand. <sighs> On previous shows, I've talked about how uh, we're having a good summer. Thank goodness. That's still holding true. In fact, um, it's almost impossible to have a bad summer at this point because we are really close to over. Um, it is um, very, very close to back to school time. And uh, so we're, uh, it's just been good. It's just been good. So I believe on the last show I had mentioned, uh, I had talked about the upcoming plans where I was going to do some outdoorsman stuff. The kid was at camp uh, way across the state and I did the thing. So it was a, basically almost a five-hour drive from our house to the camp. And on the first day, the Sunday, when we dropped off, it was a drop-off at 3 p.m. So we left the house at, gave ourselves a little bit of a um, cushion, and we stopped at the Bucky's in Florence, which is now our thing. Bucky's, if you're not familiar, I guess it started in Texas and has kind of metastasized out from there. We have, I think that might be the only one in South Carolina. It's like, imagine if you took something the size of a Walmart, but it was a like a gas station rest stop. It is 
intense. But they also have good sandwiches and they have, you know, they have good stuff. And so we typically stop there. We usually get, uh, you know, like beaver nuggets, which are effectively like corn pops. Imagine like, uh, you know, like breakfast cereal corn pops, but with uh, caramel corn stuff over it. We usually get some beef jerky and maybe some nuts and, you know, stuff like that. Maybe a drink, maybe a coffee, maybe a, sometimes I'll get a barbecue sandwich. But so, so we stop at Bucky's, gave ourselves time for that. We basically drove across the state from 9.30 a.m. and we got there right at 3. I dropped the kid off. I turn around, I leave. <laughs> and so I drive back across the state. Huge mistake. Now, I did make stops. I stopped in uh, Greenville at a comic book shop. Um, and I stopped and got myself a little bit of a dinner uh, at some point. But even so, uh, you know, even with the longer breaks going back than we had going up, because it was kind of a, I mean, we had a timetable. And so we couldn't spend too long. And uh, even when it was done, like the, I have hit the age where the 10 hours of driving in a day just, we're we're past that. We're we're not. I used to, um, you know, in one shot, basically, um, leave, leave Atlanta and go to Lafayette, Louisiana, when we were kind of in the period between moving there. Like my wife had already moved there, and I was uh, in the process of going there, or you know, moving. So I made multiple, and then I, I would do the reverse process, like going to Dragon Con and things like that. So, uh, and that was you know like a nine and a half hour drive, and I would do that. You know, I wouldn't do it in two days. I would, you know, leave in the morning and <laughs> get there at night. I was like, ugh. And now I was like, I just don't want to do that. And so I had already built in the fact that I was going to spend the night um, when we picked up. And I was not going to, I looked at Hampton Inns and Holiday Inn Expresses. I was like, I had decided I was going to spend uh, the night at a campground. As a campground, once you get to that mountainous area, like where this camp is, it's so deceptive because there are two things at play here is, uh, the campground to where I was camping was like eight miles or nine miles, but that's as the crow flies. And you don't get to drive as the crow flies. Like as driven was like 18 miles or 16 or 18 miles, even though it was like nine miles apart, you know, on a map. But also those 18 miles are not, you're not driving 60 miles an hour. You're winding around country, you know, country mountain roads. So it's like, a, although it was nine miles apart. It's like a 45 minute drive. And, uh, so I will tell you the story of when that became a factor. So, um, I, the whole plan was to sleep in the tent camp. I took my inflatable kayak. Um, it was like right on a lake. So my camp, I could basically set up my tent and then launch basically, uh, you know, 20 steps from where I was uh, sleeping. And, uh, I got there, uh, the day before, uh, I needed to pick up the kid, set up camp. And I got there real early like you can check into the campsite at two and i got there at like 2 15 and it was just sprinkling when i started and i started setting up the tent and then it was not sprinkling it was raining significantly harder than that uh novice outdoorsman uh th point number one is i did not have any kind of tarps at all and the tent is rain resistant it is absolutely not waterproof <laughs> and so when it rains like a mother on your tent it uh, soaks through the tent at some point and then it begins to soak. You drip in and then it's dripping on you. And realistically, all the rain was done by about six or seven. And if I had not set the tent up, I'd have been much better off because I would have had a lot less moisture to get out. It would have been roughly the same net effect. I should have just kayaked in the rain earlier and then not worried about the tent. Uh, so that was problem number one. And also, I need to just go to Harbor Freight and get some cheap-ass tarps and just keep them in the camping stuff. Because um, other people, there were some people, uh, more experienced outdoors people than me, um, the the simple way was to just take a cheap light tarp and just throw it over your tent. And now you've got this waterproof or water-resistant, much better water layer than, I ha than you have on the tent itself. And I totally could have done that. I mean, I have tarps in my garage. I could... I. Easily could have brought one. I just didn't do it. There were a couple of families that had this elaborate like roof, this tarp roof over their entire campsite. They, I guess, had strung it up between the trees. And so it was over their tent. It was sloped so that it drained. It was like, wow. Like they took some time setting this shit up. And I'm like, did they bring a stepladder? Because it's pretty, it's uh, tied pretty high up these trees. So, uh, you know, so that was number one. It's like, I really kind of screwed that up. Um, and when I got there that first night, I, I set up the tent, got everything kind of ready in the 
the campsite, set up my kayak, my inflatable kayak, took it down. I had stopped at on the way in at the um the uh, like bait store, basically like the it was a little bit of ways from the park, maybe like a mile from the park. But I talked to them and they said, this lure right here, a spoon lure, this is the one that's best for uh, getting trout in this lake. And they also said, you want to go, you know, like in the summer, you want to go as low as you can because they, they go in the lower, colder water. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I had my fishing poles and I had uh, like one set up with that lure, another different set up with a different thing. And uh, I just got out on that thing and I spent... How long did I spend fishing in the kayak? I spent something like three hours, three and a half hours. Now, the the upside is that it was really fun. I really enjoyed it, kind of just like paddling around in the lake. The downside is I was unburdened by having to deal with any fish. I was prepared. Now, bear in mind, at this point, I have gone fishing with my kid, which is the only fishing I have done as an adult. And we have never once kept a fish. We just caught little things, you know, like little sunfish and stuff and just throw them back. Um, but I was prepared to clean the fish. I had all the stuff. I was ready. I was prepared to grill them on my, uh, over my campfire. Did not, um, did not make it to that point. I had fish scalers. I had, you know, I had all kinds of stuff. I was ready to go for it. Didn't, didn't need to do that. So in its own way, um, if I was going to catch nothing, I probably would have done better to just kayak, you know, cause like keeping the, the, you know, especially when I had two poles and trying to keep with the lines from, uh, low enough that I could k- try to catch some trout. Now there are other fish in there, but trout was specifically kind of what I was aiming for. And, you know, low enough that I could get the trout, not so low that it drags on the bottom and, uh, you know, and then not t- tangling each, you know, tangling the two sets of pole lines up with each other. That was also its own issue. And then also I was dodging the freaking power boats of which there were a number. <laughs> so the, so the kayaking was fun. The fishing was fun, even though I caught nothing. I, you know, I was kind of loaded for bear and I did not have even the nibblest of nibbles. Every nibble I thought I was, was like catching the, a rock on the bottom. So that was all good. That was fun. I still enjoyed it. Even catching nothing, I still enjoyed it. I still would be happy. Like next year, the kid is planning on going back to the same camp. I, if that happens, I plan on doing exactly the same process. Except uh, next time I might do it for two days instead of one day. We'll see how it goes. But uh, yeah, it was, it was super fun. Now, when it stopped getting a little bit fun was, um, you know, when I first checked in, and I knew also from... Um, from booking the campsite that it was pretty full because there were not many sites left. Oddly enough, the one that I picked, which I thought was one of the better options, I wanted one that was really close to the water and some are closer and farther from the water. Um, and I also picked one on the edge. So it's like a semicircle. And I picked one at the edge of the circle because I didn't want to be in the middle of a lot of stuff. I wanted to have as few people around me as possible. Well, I guess there were a couple no-shows because like the, none of the adjacent campsites had anyone in them, which is good for me. But, and and in general, there was one group of people that were spread across a couple tents, you know, young twenties, mid twenties. And, you know, they were having fun. They were at one point literally telling each other scary campfire stories. Um, And they were a little bit noisy, but not too bad. But there were people moored on power boats near us. And those people were so fucking loud that um it was at 9 45 i thought i was just itching to call the the ranger uh, after hours line and say there are people here that are uh not respecting the quiet hours i was waiting for 10 at 10 o'clock i was gonna drop the hammer I was like 10 01 i was gonna make that phone call they were so noisy the whole night they piped down i guess they know the deal and they piped down at like 9 52 but th- so effectively like the power boats and the power boaters specifically were like the worst part of this trip. And there were a lot of them. And it's like, I didn't come out here. I'm not sleeping in a tent uh, in a state park because I want to listen to a lot of kid rock. <laughs> not, what, I, what I was hoping for was quiet. What they were hoping for was a party. And so there's this big ass boat that probably, you know, sleeps six, uh, like moored right off, the, you know, very close to my campsite. And I don't know where those people were sleeping, if they were sleeping in a campsite or if they were sleeping on the boat or what the deal was. But, um, you know, they were 
hooting and hollering and do- jumping off the boat into the lake and just, you know, just douchey party lake stuff uh, most of the evening. So you get to the ne- And also, when I have my campfire, um, I made camping, rookie camping mistake uh, alpha. <laughs> uh, maybe two weeks before the camping trip, um, we had a, one of the cans of dog food from Chewy was bent enough that it wouldn't go through the automatic uh, electric can opener. And I said, well, and I, we didn't have a hand crank can opener in the kitchen. And it's like, well, I don't even know why, where it went. We used to have one, but I have one on the camping stuff. I go, I get it. I uh, open the dog food. And then I very, very stupidly did not, I repeat, did not immediately return that can opener to the camping stuff. So, when we get out there, one of the things I had to cook was our traditional can of beans. And you know what I don't have? I don't have a fucking can opener. <sighs> but you know what I do have? I'm trying to be a resourceful, budding country gentleman outdoorsman. What I do have is I do have a hammer and I have tent stakes. So what I did is I took a tent stake and I punched about 35 holes in that can of beans until it was mostly perforated. And then I took the hammer and just went bam on the lid and broke that thing down and then dumped my somewhat sandy, uh, somewhat hammery um, can of beans into the pot and threw it over the campfire. <sighs> the travails. It's all part of the learning process. Uh, I'm not holding myself to a super high standard. You know, I don't do this a lot. And this is the very first time I've ever solo camped. I've done it with other people. I've done it, you know, as a Boy Scout. Um, I've done it with the kid, but I've never just been out there by myself. And uh, there's something to that. You know, truly, when the kid was little, it's not like the kid was helping. But, you know, I wasn't just out there uh, in the solitary. And it was nice. And uh, then what I did um, the next morning, I got up and it, I got up, I forget when sunrise was. I think sunrise was maybe like 620. I got up about 545 and got my kayak and I was on the water by six. And uh, I kayaked, you know, from a little after six. I was out on the water when the sun rose. Um, I, I basically went across the lake to this other little island thing, then went back. Um, I had a... a, a, a you know, I had an eye on the time because what I had worked out in the Gantt chart of leaving here was like, I need to be back on shore at 7.30. Break down the kayak, break down the tent site, get in the shower by 8.45, leave the park at 9, and then I can, you know, to get to camp pickup, which is at 10 a.m. So that's my that's my timetable, right? 7.30. Uh, give myself a little over an hour. I was also going to start the campfire as soon as I got you know, on land, I was going to start the campfire, make myself some coffee while I broke down the tent and everything. And then, uh, you know, roll shower at eight 45, roll at nine. That was th- the timetable. Then what happened was I could not open the valves to let the air out of the inflatable kayak. So it's seven 30. Now it's seven 40. And I, I, you know, I gave myself like five or 10 minutes to break down the the kayak and then I was going to break down the rest of the stuff. So 10, 15, 20 minutes later, I I have not deflated the kayak and I can't, and I'm trying to unscrew it. Here's rookie mistake. Number two, I don't have pliers or channel locks or anything like that. And I cannot get enough of a grip. There's, it's just too hard to turn the valves and I fuck around with them and I try to turn them and I spent so long. Um, I, to look to see, do I have any tool that would help with this? And I kind of figured, and I was puzzled. How can I, I screwed the thing in by hand and then I inflated it. And why can I not unscrew it? And then I realized I screw it in with, there's no pressure. And then I inflate it to a high pressure, high enough pressure, you know, that it's solid. And then probably that puts enough force on that, uh, those threads that I just can't unscrew. I was like, God damn it. So, uh, at some point I have to give up on the kayak and I, you know, break down the tent, put it in the bag, you know, break down all the stuff. I smartly, one of the things I did right is I brought our little Academy sports wagon with us. They have wagons, but they were, you know, much like, you know, the, the luggage carts at the hotel. Everybody had wagons by the time I was trying to undo it. When I was taking my shit back to the car, the other thing about being at the campsite right on the water and away from people is it was also farther from the parking lot. And so this was a pretty rustic situation. Like at Myrtle Beach State Park, we park in the campsite. We have... Uh, a power plug. We have water. We don't have any of that stuff, and it was far away, so it was a little, uh, a little more 
you know, it's still in a state park and there's still a bathroom, a walk away, uh, you know, and running water, just not in your campsite. And so, you know, I was able to load the stuff up. I was able to make my coffee and I still have a non deflated. So at this point, it's like, it's really up against it. It's like 845. I haven't put up the, the kayak. You know, I've got most of my stuff up, but I'm not done. I was like, fuck, I don't know what to do. So I got everything but the kayak in the car. And it's like 8.55 at this point. And then um, I end up asking other campers until I find somebody who had a Leatherman with pliers on it. And actually, I was carrying the kayak. I carried the kayak to their campsite <laughs> just to <laughs> eliminate as much of this. They gave me the Leatherman. You know, one minute later, I've got the kayak deflated. I was like, oh, Jesus. And, I, you know, at the point, I was really at the point where I was considering taking my pocket knife and just punching holes in that thing. <laughs> it's like, let me try to make a small hole that maybe I can patch later, but I can't do the thing. I got I can't get into my car inflated. I got to go. So, so that was, <laughs> and, so then, and I made it to the camp at like nine fifty nine or 10. I got in the shower at like nine Oh five and sh- showered as fast as I possibly could and got the out of there as fast as I could. But even so I was like, Oh, and it turns out that they were do you know, having like a little presentation and the kids were doing karaoke, you know, like nine forty five or something. And I missed all that. Cause I didn't get there till like 10 It's like, Oh, bummer, man. It was just kind of a bummer. So now gro- going forward, bring tarps, bring channel locks, bring can opener. <laughs> That's my mantra to myself. Bring tarps, bring channel locks, bring can opener. All right, I'm going to stop and take a sip of this delicious, fine, yesterday's Starbucks Americano. But it's 140 degrees exactly. I know, because the ion mug tells me. That's the opposite. It used to be new coffee that was cold, and now it's old coffee that is perfect temperature. It's not, it's not perfect taste. It is perfect temperature. All right, friends, I'm going to tell you about a company that I like, and that is Factor. We signed up to get the Factor meals, and we got them. And I honestly thought I was getting meal prep kit because I did not read the really closely. And they showed up, and they were meals. They look like the stuff you get from Lean Cuisine, but they do not taste like that. They taste delicious. They taste like a restaurant meal. It is true cognitive dissonance because it looks like crap from uh you know the, the freezer section at Bilo and it tastes delicious and your mind kind of reels a little bit like this isn't what this stuff tastes like in the little black plastic container but it, it's good it is not frozen they prepare the thing they put it in the tray they put it in the cold pack and send it to you. And you're getting it uh, as, as close to preparation time as possible. It tastes great. We went with the vegan options because it involved the least uh, negotiating on who will eat what. But you don't have to. You can get meat-heavy ones. You can do whatever you want. you got a lot of options with that. They taste good. They arrive. They're fast. So, also, it's been summer when we had time. It's getting close to back to school. So, you may not have a lot of time for prep. And these things take two minutes and they taste good. That's what I'm telling you. They taste good. <laughs> they taste so good that if you de took them out of the thing and just put them on a plate, no one would think twice about this meal. They'd say, oh, well, thank you for spending all that time in the kitchen making such a delicious meal. And they came with little bottles of smoothies. And I hoarded the last little bit of those smoothies. And just a couple days ago, there was a situation where I couldn't eat lunch and I needed some sustenance. And I grabbed that last smoothie. I had been saving for just such a uh, just such a situation and down that thing gave me what I needed to go. So if this sounds good to you, if you want fast, delicious meals delivered straight to your door, go to factormeals.com slash EGC50 and you will save 43%. No, my friends, you save 50% when you use coupon code EGC50. That's factormeals.com slash EGC50 and you will get 50% off. They can pay me to talk about it, but they can't pay me to like it. And I liked it. And this tasted so good. It is shocking. So again, factormeals.com slash EGC50, and you will save 50%. Thank you, Factor Meals, for sponsoring the Evil Genius Chronicles and all the great Backbeat Media shows. Thank you. One more sip of the delicious coffee that's not so delicious.
just in the last couple of days, the kid came to me and said, I want to start a business. I said, okay, that's laudable. What do you want to do? I don't know. And I said, go away with a sheet of paper and brainstorm all the businesses you might think you want to do. And uh, talk to me in like an hour or two. And to the credit, <laughs> kid went off and did that and came back with a list of, I think, 10 things. And I said, cool. Now look at this list and pick the top three of these, the top three that you would most want to do. These are all things you could do. What are the three that you would most do? And the three things were, uh, I'm trying to remember what they were. One of them was lawn care. Uh, I forget what the second, the, the second one was. And then the third one was like 3D printing, selling 3D printed collectibles. And I said, well, the lawn care... You know, the other two, and I don't I still can't remember what the other one was, but they were ones that would require, basically require coordination with other people, being on their timetables, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I said, and the lawn care means you're going to stand out in the sun. And also, if they're not in this neighborhood, you got to get the stuff there. You got to get the lawnmower to them. And we don't have a trailer. We don't have a way of transporting. We could either take the old gas push mower, and we have no way of transporting the riding electric lawnmower anywhere. So we decided, huh, let's pursue perhaps the 3D printed collectibles. The wrinkle there is that the last time I tried to do anything with my 3D printer was at least a year ago, and it didn't work. It was not feeding the uh, filament. And I was trying all stuff, all sorts of stuff. I replaced the Bowden tube, which is the thing that goes between the feeding mechanism and the print head. And, I, you know, and it was a little old and sticky. Um, you know, and so I was just trying to troubleshoot it and then I eventually gave up and didn't do it. So the, the 3d printer has been sitting untouched for about a year, just right here, right next to my desk. You know, <laughs> one of those things, uh, it, it basically is a little, uh, um, monument to failure <laughs> as I walked by. I was like, yeah, that's a big thing that's just sitting there unused. So I, I made the promise. I said, I will spend a little bit of time and try to get that thing back up and running. You know, so step one is get filament uh, working, you know, all the stuff. So I went yesterday to the 3D printer and I said, huh, let me at least, let me try a new thing of filament just to see it. And as I went to change the filament, I touched it and there's two wheels on the little filament mechanism. There's a, like a one with a gears teeth that kind of push the thing th through it. And then there's a smooth tensioning uh, wheel. And the filament goes between those two. And as I touched the mechanism, the tensioning wheel just went blip and fell off. I'm like, oh, you know what? If that was so loose, it just fell off. That was probably always the problem. That's why it wasn't feeding because it had nothing to push against because that thing just had backed out and was just loose. I'm like, well, this might be easier than I thought. So I got the thing back on, got all the stuff going. And lo and behold, thing, this Creality Ender 3 Pro is kind of a, it's basically been neglected. In the year and a half we've lived in this house, it's barely been touched. I only tried to print one time and failed. And uh, I fired it up, and it just worked. I leveled the bed, and we printed out some little uh, test prints. We went, we used, did a couple of them, and we said, as a test, let's try the 0.4 print head, the 0.4 millimeter like hole in the little brass uh fitting and then see how that looks and then let's try some point two on a better resolution and the trade-off here is that you know it looks better on the finer resolution but it also takes like more than twice as long to print so we printed a couple and we were going to use this leveling fluid years ago when the kid was dressed as batgirl with these 3d printed batarangs that i had printed out at the hackerspace um they were just two halves of, bat of a batarang with a bolt in the middle, and but they were foldable batarangs. And there were these guys at a booth that were selling 3D printing stuff. And they gave us a uh, box that's this 3D leveling kit, which is really just like epoxy. And you coat it over your 3D print and it smooths it out. So if you have something that's supposed to be round and you've got those little tiny stair steps on it, it kind of smooths that out. And we said, great. What we're going to do, we're going to print out two of each resolution, two of the 0.4, you know, uh, print heads, two of the 0.2 print heads, and then we're going to put the leveling solution on each. Now, what? here's the thing we didn't think about. And there, this was a possibility. And I mentioned the possibility before we started. They gave us this leveling solution something like six years ago. <laughs> Might have been seven years ago. And uh, it may not still be good. I don't know what the, I don't know how shelf stable and what the shelf life of this stuff is, but this has been in this office a very long ass time. 
So we did all the stuff. We took two, two of the prints, you know, half of the thing to go down and level it. We had got all the stuff ready to mix these things up. And I suspected it was epoxy. I actually read the fine print and saw that it was epoxy because you got to mix the things together. Two parts of bottle A and one part of bottle B. It's like, that sounds kind of epoxy-like to me. So we go to mix it up, and one of the two bottles is like the consistency of uh, honey. <laughs> it's like it won't even pour out of the, the thing. It's like, oh, Jesus. So we had to get that up. But, but the upside, the 3D printer's back. I've got OctoPrint back up and running. Um, I set the kit up an account so that um, uh, prints can be started remotely by the OctoPrint thing. So, and monitored, more importantly, monitored remotely. We've got the webcam on it so you can make sure that it's not, you know, doing a crazy ass spaghetti code. And that felt good. You know, it was, again, making this thing be a working. I turned the thing off um, just for this recording so I didn't have the fan. blowing basically in my microphone but uh it's been up and running for like the last 24 hours and um it's actually good to have that thing i actually like sitting here at my desk when i'm working and just having the print going it it feels like stuff is happening i've always loved that feeling you know just at the when was it like two it was when we lived in chicago so we're talking like 2003 ish i used to get those um catalogs from the place that had like the cd burning robots I just wanted to create a business <laughs> that involved burning those CDs. And that was when I started to pursue that thing that didn't last very long, but it's called I Know the Sandman. And I wanted it, it was I wanted to do basically what Pearl Jam does, which is have bands sell their own bootlegs. And uh, you know, so I would you could order the thing online and then I would burn the CDs and mail them to you. This was a very 2003 idea. <laughs> you wouldn't do any of that nowadays. But I just wanted something where I could justify paying two grand for one of those little robots and then leave for my day job in the morning and have like a stack of work and come back at night and get all the burnt CDs and, you know, put them in envelopes and mail them. I just, I love that stuff. I love the feeling of a robot doing the job for me. So I actually like the thought of the kid taking orders for collectibles or, you know, or just, these are the things I want to stock and I want to have print out these things. And then, uh, you know, it's like, all right, we'll start that up and we'll you know, like, all day, every day, it's just uh, printing up new stuff for this little business. I love that thought, and I, uh, I just, I was surprised how um, how easy it was to get back. This is in the old days, and this is the mid nineties. My friend Gareth and I have told the stories of going to this salvage computer place with him, and Gareth actually had me buy a junk computer one time because I was so tentative about like opening up cases of stuff. I just didn't want to open it up. Now, bearing in mind, you know, I'm a bad mechanic. I'm not. I'm not good at that kind of stuff. Not necessarily because of any intrinsic anything, but I just don't have the flight time. I have not done. I've not worked on cars. I've not done a lot of handyman stuff. And uh, what he did is he bought. We bought a junker computer, and he just had me take things out. He's like, just take the CP out. We, by the way, we're doing this at work. <laughs> When there was nothing going on, we would just sit at our desk and fuck with this. It's about like a $10 piece of shit junk computer. I don't think we ever even powered it up because we didn't care. We may have powered it up just to make sure that it actually was powerable, but this was never intended to be a usable computer. It was just a a test bed because Gareth's belief was that if I have a computer I'm, I'm not willing to open the case on, I don't really own that computer. And that if I'm not willing to you know, replace the hard drive or replace stuff about it, then uh, I shouldn't be scared of it. It's like, it's the thing you own. It's a tool. Uh, don't don't be nervous about it. And which was, by the way, exactly. It was like a gift that Gareth uh, basically took me under his wing and you know, was willing to make me his protege like this. And uh, so, uh, you know, I was farting around with uh, the 3D printer and I was realizing there was stuff in there. I was like, oh, I don't want to have to change the print head and what happens if I do that? And I realized I was going back to the bad old me where I was scared of touching the thing. I was like, I, you know, this Ender 3 Pro is kind of built for you to fart around with it. Like if you wanted to, the thing that's got the, the central CPU and everything, you can unmount it from where it comes on and you can put it somewhere else and you can do all kinds of stuff. Like if you go on Thingiverse, um, there's lots of things that you can print for any 3D printer that you, any model of 3D printer you want. You go on Thingiverse, there will be things you can print to modify your printer. Like the these rails um, uh, have a big groove down the center of them. And junk 
collects in there. You can print out things that will be like rail guards that will just click in there. And so, so that instead of having a groove to collect little pieces of 3D print detritus, it'll just be a solid uh, face on there. You can do all kinds of stuff. And it's all about not being scared of the machine. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, have I finally hit the point where I'm not scared of the machine? Oh, that, my friends, is a good feeling. And so uh, very shortly, I think we're going to be up at production with, uh, with the 3D printer. Sounds great. Uh, I'm going to talk very briefly on this. Uh, first, I'm gonna <laughs> mention I'm going to put a little flag uh, in the sand here because I believe uh, I'm coining this term. I should Google it and find out am I coining this term. But there's a thing I call boxes in the alley argument style, and it's based on the fact if you watch any '70s cop show where there there's a foot chase, they're chasing a bad guy. At some point in every one of those streets of San Francisco or Kojak or anything like that, at some point there will be uh, the bad guy will be running through an alley and they will pass a stack of boxes and the bad guy will take their hand and just throw those boxes down. And it never actually um, stops the cops. It just makes them kind of jump over it and slows them down slightly. And there's a argument style that I refer to as that, which is this argument can't win. It can't do anything. It's, re- it's really <laughs> almost nothing, but it's just there to just throw a little bit of chaos in the path of the people you're arguing with. And I've been thinking about this when I listen to uh, this electric car nihilism. I am, at this moment, um, I have a reservation on the Volvo uh, electric car that's not even, it's not going to be delivered for till like next summer. <laughs> but when they announced them, I I think within the first 24 hours of them announcing, I put a reservation down. It's like, I want to be uh, early in the line. So I put 500 bucks deposit down on this thing just to be early in the line. I may or may not actually buy the car. I could always cancel that and get my 500 bucks back, but I just wanted to be early in line if they get it. And it looks good to me, but I see all this stuff and I've listened to, I'm now listening to a bunch of electric car podcasts and there's this, uh, counter argument to electric cars. One of them is they don't do, there's no net savings of the environment because you, you still have to dig stuff up out of the ground. You still have to mine cobalt. You still have to mine lithium. You're not saving the planet, you asshole. <laughs> you know, there's that. Um, and then there's the this one that just came up with uh, recently, this somebody, and I have not, you, you probably have to trace the money trails because I'm going to suspect that wherever, whoever funded this study is somebody on the side of no electric car, <laughs> whether it's a gas company or just a conservative dickhead or something. I don't know what, but somebody who who's against uh, electric cars uh, at all did an analysis that says that electric cars, it costs more to drive an electric car than it does to drive a gas car. And I did a little bit of now. I know that to not be the case because I have, you know, f- friends who own these things and they know that it, they don't, they know how much they spent in gas and they know how much they spent electricity and their entire electricity budget for their whole house, including the electric car is about the same as their gas budget previously, <laughs> you know, their gasoline budget previously. So uh, they know that this cannot be true. And, uh, you know, I did a little, uh, back of the envelope math and I, I took like the worst case scenario, um, for, my power bill, like right now in the hottest tarp part of the month and like the most conservative estimate, I got um, that I would, you know, you get about three miles per kilowatt hour. And like the highest rate I pay in the year is 17 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's a little over five cents a mile to pay for the power to drive an electric car. Um, and then with my being conservative, like the best mileage I ever get when I'm driving on the highway is 30 in my Subaru Outback. And with the current price of gas, I'm it's nine cents a mile to pay for the gasoline drive drive this car. And if I'm driving in town, it's more like 10, 11, 12, because I don't get that 30 miles an hour when I'm driving in the city. And so there's no way. And and if you dig into that study that says that it was more expensive. The way they do that is they roll the cost of the charger in and they amortize it in a really short time period. So essentially, like, let's say you pay an electrician to put in the charger and you have pay a charger. So you got maybe $3,000 of cost there. So they charge that all to one year. And then they say, look, it costs more than this because in this one year, the cost of the charger plus the power is more than the gasoline. But 
you're not going to have the, you know, it just doesn't make sense because you're going to amortize that out over as long as you use it, which will be much longer than one year. So it was, you know, all this kind of stuff. And as uh, Robert Llewellyn on his podcast points out is the whole arguments about how, uh, you know, the, the arguments about mining cobalt and lithium. Um, they're getting very good at both reusing the batteries. So power walls and things like that, that you use for uh, storing grid power. A lot of those are um, old car batteries because uh, you know, if you, you wreck a Prius or you wreck a Tesla, but the battery is still good. The battery is good. Right. And it'll still store energy. And in fact, the energy it takes to run your house um, is less burdensome on a battery than the energy it takes to run a car. It takes a shitload of energy to take a, you know, a 5,000 pound car and uh, accelerate it from zero to 60. Your car, your, your car uses more power in a shorter time and it's harder on the battery than, than uh, your house. So if you're doing one of those things where you want to have storage for your renewable energy or even grid energy, but you just want to use it at different times. So you buy it at low energy times and then use it at, at, at peak times. Um, you know, you can use old car batteries for that on top of the fact that they're getting very good at recycling unusable car batteries now. So you can reclaim the lithium. And there's some estimate that like within 20 years, something like that, I think there will not need to be any new lithium mined. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I might be believing <laughs> the exact opposite end of the spectrum of this uh, study. I don't believe, but you know, this, this like general, this nihilism, like, oh, electric cars aren't going to help. They demonstrably help. <laughs> There's no, oh, they just use grid power. So they're still using the same dirty coal. Yes, but they can be cleaned. You can stop using coal power and start using wind or solar or hydro, but you can't make gasoline burning at your tailpipe cleaner. You can't not do that if you've got a gas engine. It just doesn't, it's just absurd. And, you know, the, the whole purpose of the nihilism is just to get everybody to give up and just accept that we're all fucked and we're all going to die. You know, that's that's the purpose. They say, yeah, you, know, you can't help anything. Here you go. Here's the box. I'm running through the alley. Here's the boxes. You know, I'm going to throw them in your way because electric cars uh, don't say help anything. They don't do anything. They don't help anything. All right. I'm going to I'm going to have a soft stop right here. I'm going to say goodbye. Goodbye, friends. I'm going to keep going. But it's kind of like if you've ever been at a business meeting uh, or a meeting at your day job, let's say, where um, you're in a larger meeting and then there's a topic that's of an interest to a subset of people. And I say, if you're interested in this, you can hang around. Otherwise, everybody else can drop off. We're doing that right now because um, one of the patrons has asked me to talk a little about deaccumulation strategies and retirement. I am not retired, but um, I can see it from where I am. And uh, he wanted me to talk a little bit about decumulation strategies. I understand this is not a topic of interest to everybody. If you don't have stuff to decumulate, that's, you know, that is an issue. But I understand why this topic is not of interest. If you're young, um, it may be of less interest to you, but who, who knows? But anyway, goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you do not care about that. Now I'm going to talk about that. So I'm not going to talk about absolute numbers, but I will talk about percentages. So, you know, I am at the point where are FI, you know, financial independence. Uh, I, although I have the day job uh, presently, I don't have to have a day job. I could, I could not have one at this moment and I, I would be fine. And where our money sits is basically in the four big pools. Now it's spread across companies, but I'm thinking about, I think about it in really the big pools, which is we've got the taxable money or the ta not in taxable, the taxed money. So this would be like the stock options um, that vested, or not stock options, but the, the incentive stock I had at my previous job that um, when they were granted to me, they taxed them. And now I have post-tax money. So I have stocks that are sitting there and brokerage accounts that are on post-tax money. And that's about 40% of my total um, money that I have. Then I've got the whole 401k. Um, I would have said 401k IRA, but back when I was doing uh, mega Roth stuff, I actually rolled all my IRAs into my work 401k because you kind of have to for tax reasons. So um, I, I no longer really have any IRAs. I just have 
401k money spread across two companies now. But that money is about, and so 401k money was tax deferred going in. I will still owe simple income taxes on it when I take it out. So that's about 40% of what I have. And then about 20% of what I have, it's less than that, but I'm rounding to to the zeros, um, is Roth money. And so Roth, if you don't remember, Roth is money that you pay it with already taxed money. You contribute with taxed money, but all the growth is not taxed. So it does not get taxed again when it comes out. So now I've got three pools of money, each of which has different tax stuff, right? So the uh, taxable brokerage stuff, um, as I pull it out, I may owe, if I sell stocks, I owe capital gains on it. So I owe some smaller percentage than my income tax, but I still owe tax on it. So if I make, you know, if I make a $50,000 gain on a lot of stocks, I have to pay capital gains tax on that 50,000. Um which is better than paying income tax on that 50,000. It will be a lower rate, but it is still a rate. If I withdraw from my 401k/IRA pool, I will owe simple income. So if I withdraw 50,000 from that, it's income. It's the same as if I earned it from my job. So I'll owe whatever my tax rate is on that 50,000. And then if I withdraw Roth, um, I owe no tax, additional tax on it. So really and truly, the decumulation, st- and then this is all, this is all just like where the money sits. What the money is sitting in is roughly, I have um, something like 25% in bonds that I got into because um, the, the hourly financial planners thought, that I was way too exposed to stock and they're probably right. And so uh, I've got some bonds just so that the early days of uh, retirement, whenever I stop drawing a check, I've got some bonds that are guaranteed to not go way down in value. And that's, you know, that's like 20% of the money. A a big chunk of the rest of it is in stocks. I still have a lot of my former company stock. Um, At this point, it's actually a little bit hard to get out of because of the capital gains. So I have to... um, so when there when we have no day job money coming in, everything about this is based on tuning the taxes, really, which is I can withdraw money from the 401k stuff, but I don't want to withdraw like 500000 in one year because then I'd owe a shitload of taxes. So you more want to trickle it out because you can kind of actually control your taxes. And so probably what I'm going to do for the early years of this is I'm going to withdraw money from the bond So I'm going to basically sell the bonds that are in my 401k and get some of that out. And I will, it will be probably the majority of my money will in the early years of this will come from the 401k pile, come from the 401k accounts, probably the bonds, but I'm not sure on that. Um, And then I will augment that with some of the tax, selling some of the stocks in the taxable account. So I'm going to, basically tune the capital gains and the uh, simple income. My plan is, unless there is an emergency where I need a lot of money at once, I plan to not touch the Roth, conceivably forever. Um, It's kind of, there is a backup. Like if I needed an extra $100,000 a year um, and I pulled it from my 401k or from my taxable, I'm going to incur a lot of taxes on that. Um, but if I needed an extra hundred thousand from, and I pulled it from the Roth, there's no extra taxes. So, you know, this is some sort of, you know, this could be a health emergency or some sort of, I don't know, you know, like something catastrophic happens to the house or I, you know, like a big, you need a big pile of money fast. If nothing like that happens, um, I won't touch that money. And in part, because that is the best money to leave to your heirs, the Roth money, like all the other stuff have weird rules around it. Um, and whether the basis gets reset, um, they may uh, and they may get a cost basis set the day that you uh, you die, and then uh, they owe taxes on other stuff. Like the tax situation for your heirs is weird, but the inherited Roth I think is just stays a Roth for them, so they have no tax implication for any of the Roth stuff. So that's the best money to leave to them. Um, your 401k and your taxed accounts are the second best. Your 401ks are fraught to leave. So the plan is to try to finish, uh, you know, tr- try to end my life with $0 in the 401k. Still money, but $0 in the 401k. Um, and and to get that out without paying uh, more tax than I need to. So I'm not, 
uh, <laughs> I'm it's definitely not one of those government shit. You know, I'm not an anti-tax. Uh, you know, uh, paying taxes is the worst thing in the world. Anti-government person, but also I don't want to pay more, way more than I need to. So you know, and, and I don't know what these numbers are. Probably the first year that I am fully retired, um, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to actually file my taxes so early because what I'm going to do is probably start working on my tax return in like uh, November, the year before, because what I want to do is figure out all the, I want to tune the parameters and I essentially I'm going to like fill it in with like estimate numbers and then say, what if I sold X amount of stock? Where would the taxes be? What if I pulled X amount more out of my 401k and try to get in on the point where I can get the most money, like wherever the breaking points are when the taxes go up, I want to kind of like get up to that point, but not over that point to kind of minimize those things. And here's the other thing is there's a point in capital gains um, where uh, you pay zero percent. You have a zero percent, just like in your income. Like if you earn, I forget what it is, like your first $15,000, like you owe zero taxes on that. There's a similar thing in capital gains. And I want to say it's $85,000. But I think your simple income has some effect on that. I don't remember if that somehow or another, your simple income does something to that. And I don't remember, I don't know exactly what that is. And this is a thing that requires future research. But let's just say you had no, for the sake of uh, argument, you had $85,000 of capital gains you could incur and get zero uh, tax. The thing you should do Every year, if you've got unrealized gains into your stocks, is you should always sell eighty-five grand worth of gain. Now, if your you know if your stock has doubled, if you got a stock that's doubled, sell one hundred and seventy thousand dollars worth of it. Realize your eighty-five thousand dollar gain. Pay your tax on it. Your tax rate is zero. You're done. So now you've either got uh, that money in cash, or you've got you could turn around and rebuy your stock. There's all these rules about tax loss harvesting and how much you can do and you can't rebuy the stock within 30 days or even a substantially uh, identical stock within 30 days. There are no rules around tax gain harvesting because you've paid your taxes. So you could sell your stock, you know, whatever it is, sell $170,000 worth of stock, get your $85,000 gain, pay your $0 taxes on it and turn right around and 10 minutes later rebuy that $170,000 worth of stock, except now your cost basis is higher and you will owe less tax. Or maybe even if it goes down a little bit, you will get a loss when you sell it. So this is the kind of stuff I, I have to figure out. Um, and the tuning of that, like trying to get every nickel of my free capital gains, you know, you could also keep that as cash if you wanted to do that or do something else with that cash or reinvest it in something different or whatever. But, uh, you know, you, you, like that part there, like whenever you have room in that capital gains, you should, you know, that's a thing. You shouldn't, uh, if you don't take advantage of that, then you're kind of giving away tax money somewhere else down the line. So those are the things that I want to do. So that's like, that's in a nutshell uh, for, for our listener who wanted such things. That's like the decumulation, which is uh, it will be largely 401k. Uh, largely bonds in the early days. And then who knows, you know, where, whatever has plenty of money in it augmented with uh, stock sales um, up to that capital gains limit, trying very hard not to touch the Roth money, although it's always there if I need it. So it's, it's like a backstop. And then going forward, that's, that's the, the, whenever I can kind of tune in what that path is, that's how it will go is to draw as much as I can from the 401k every year without uh, triggering a lot of taxes and then fill in with the other stuff while I always, um, hitting my zero, always filling up my 0% capital gains bucket, you know, whether I, whether I turn right back around and re buy that stock or not, or whether I use that money and then, you know, that's the money we live on. Both are possible. It just kind of depends on current situations that year, but that's, that's how, that's how I'm planning on navigating these waters. So anyway, if you listen to all that, if you made it all the way to the end, thank you for listening. Uh, as always, Dave, at evilgeniuschronicles.org. I appreciate your time. Um, let me know. I, I know my demographics skew a little bit older, whiter, 
tech guy. So probably more people than, <laughs> than, than in the general population made it to the end and actually care about this topic. So <laughs> let me know. Uh, uh, if you, let me know what your strategies are. If you have a strategy, if you're facing this down and you've got similar uh, decisions to make, let me know your strategies. Dave at EvilGeniusChronicles.org. I thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you letting me be in your ear holes, as intimate and dirty as that sounds. Thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. When I was taking my sh- my shit, and it was, and it was, and it was every step, every step of fucking adventure. adventure.